0: This week's episode of Little Red Village is the second half of our conversation with Piper Hughley, author of By Her Own Design, a fictionalized biography of Ann Cole Lowe that blends Piper's extensive research with her magical ability to utilize prose in the telling of a story of an American Black fashion designer whose life and work are connected with so many important events in our shared history and a designer whose name seems to finally be publicly celebrated. Of course, we love this, and we're thrilled to have a chance to share with you the wisdom of an exceptionally talented writer who has been doing some pretty hard work that has helped to make sure that Low is remembered and known as she should have been during her lifetime. In this episode, we'll be talking more about Piper's upcoming projects, especially about her fascination with her friendship between Portia Washington daughter of Booker T, and Alice Roosevelt, daughter of the American President. We'll hear more of Piper's excellent advice for young writers, and hear more about how she worked her way to the career successes we love watching her celebrate. There are a lot of things that Jonathan and I think are really important about these conversations, and making sure that we do our part to celebrate the achievements of those who are not properly credited for their contributions during their lifetime that's always a priority for us at Little Red Fashion. After this project, is there anything going forward in the future you'd like to do? Maybe something similar, another real historic figure, but
1: fictionalized? Well, this is, like I, I'd considered me to be launching 2.0 of my writing career in terms of this, going from historical romance into writing more of these historical fictions of unsung Black women. Sales have to happen. So hopefully, if sales happen, that I could write more of these stories of unappreciated, unsung, unheralded Black women. My next book is coming out in April, which is called American Daughters, which is about the secret interracial friendship between Alice Roosevelt, who was a fashion icon in her own right back in the day. (laughs) And her friend, Portia Washington, who was the daughter of Booker T. Washington. So these two young women, one white, one black, had made friends, become friends in the wake of the huge historical upheaval when Teddy, in the wake of becoming president after the assassination of McKinley, just thought, oh, I'll just have Booker T. Washington over for dinner one night so we can commiserate about how our teenage daughters drive us absolutely mad. And he he did that, and the country just fell apart because he didn't realize this was the first time that a Black man had been invited to the White House to come through the front door as a guest. And these two rebellious young women was like, well, well, screw that. Alice was well-known for that anyway. People know the whole thing about PR saying, I can either run the country or I can control Alice, but I cannot do both all of these things that well, my does. favorite is
0: her smoking on the roof when she's like right. you're not smoking cigarettes under my
1: right you cannot smoke under my roof so she heard going on the roof and smoking yeah all of these stories about alice that exists that in 2023 oh in 2024 when the book will come out was like oh yeah we can appreciate what a feisty thing she was or whatever but it always goes back to the whole thing to me why why was she like that and that there are a handful of other historical fixes out there. There's even a historical mystery series where Alice is the detective, but not enough investigation into why she was such a rebel. Well, the friendship so.
0: too with Portia. I mean, that exactly. just hearing that. I mean, I already I was going to buy the book anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I already like I. It's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, thinking about I make a friend. What I can do with my girlfriends now versus what their experience right has been like exactly realizing what they had in common and what they knew about each other and what they could learn from each other like exactly that's a huge universe for exploration i totally understand
1: so insane they had so much in common besides their fathers being great statesmen their mother dying at incredibly early ages alice's mother was only two days old she's so alice was only two days old when her mother died. this was the horrific day that was called from the state legislature in Buffalo to come home because both his mother and his wife were dying. And when his brother opens the door, he says, there is a curse on this house. And him having to go back and forth, up and down the steps uh, between his mother and wife dying. And this emergence of this baby which they named Alice after her mother, so he never said her name again. <laughs> yeah, that. Oh
0: my gosh! Can you imagine? I mean,
1: there's what reasons people
0: a... out, and there's reasons
1: people do what they do. That's um, it. That's it. So there's so much there in terms of what it's like for both of these young women to grow up not having that mother, and then having the stepmothers come in and highly resenting their places in their father's heart. So all of that made for very interesting, I think in a lot of ways, and I don't know about other people, but like juicy gossipy, things that they both got into as what I call good daughters, good wives, good mothers, and finding a way to liberation for themselves. Because it's, there was so much there, I could only go into like the first third of their friendship, which lasted until Portia's death in 1978. So from 1901 to 1978, you have these two.
0: I mean, that where any of us would be lucky to have.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right, absolutely you
0: know, exactly. long. I mean, if you think about the events, the things that they would have encountered, I mean, it's, it was twelve different planets, twelve I mean, different exactly. nations between between those years. It's absolutely amazing. I
1: mean, oh. so that is what is next up for me. <laughs>
2: As a professor teaching future writers, which is one thing we love about you since we're educating the future fashion industry, how and all creatives, how would you advise any young people listening who are writers to develop habits or practices that you think will serve them as their voices develop?
1: Read. <laughs> Not enough of our young people are reading to develop their voices. So you're absolutely right, Sarah Jonathan, in terms of this question just sort of what is relying on other like aspects to tell a story, but really to get the vocabulary and the sense of sentence structure and all of that, nothing really compares to actually reading the text. There's no shortcuts to that. So,
2: gotta put in the reps. You gotta put in the reps. Gotta just put like... in the
1: reps. It's so true. It's so true. You gotta put in the reps.
2: I mean, all it's the best really, really writers good. are, in my experience, avid readers right. before anything else.
1: Before anything else, exactly. And there are right. a lot of writers out there who are out there now, almost bragging. Like, I don't have time. Yeah. <sighs> what?
2: <It's> scary. <laughs> you that scares candy. me. I don't buy that. I when I hear that, it immediately like raises some subconscious red flag in my brain. And this sounds shady, but I'm half tempted always to buy their book to see how (laughs) bad it is because they don't read, because they don't read, because they don't read. And that's very odd to me. And I'm not shaming them. I mean, if it works for you, it works for you. But there's no other way to be exposed to just the different ways other authors structure their narrative, how they are expository, how they work in dialogue or different point of view. There's no, no substitute for that. And we definitely have a literacy crisis in this. Country. I, for anyone listening who's an educator right now, I'm sure you're having this problem in the K-12 system mm-hmm. because a lot of yeah. these kids are coming through. A friend of mine who's a great teacher. coming to us
1: in college. Mm-hmm. Like a tsunami, it's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's coming for, to us in college. We see. I see.
0: Well, oh, so it's strange right. to me. I think of reading as like a joyful thing. Like I look mm-hmm. forward to having time when I can finish my book. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. if I want to learn about something. Yeah, I can look at a million websites, but like I want to find the expert and then I want to read all their books. Right. And, right. I mean, there has to be a way to communicate or teach that or show that to younger people. I mean, that's one of the things we're trying to do: is help people understand that education, while it's work. Mm-hmm. also like joyous work. It's really yes. fun work or it can be. And there is a way
1: in. There's always a way in. True, true. Now I'm just saying appreciation of what you guys do in terms of talking about fashion, not as a fluffy thing. It is not a fluffy thing. It is culture. It is engineering. It is math. It is all of these things put together. So we, we must have an awareness and appreciation of it in that respect.
2: Well, I think, too, a a big part of the ethos at Little Red, and just mine, I guess, personally, we've done a vast disservice to God knows how many generations to come in this country by teaching to the test for the better part of my lived experience. And doing so is, in my opinion, a big part of why we see so many kids shying away from reading, shying away from these things, because they don't understand that education's not just about shutting your teacher up, shutting your parents up, getting a whatever mark on the transient test that's in front of you for that day, that week, that year, that high school career. Right. It's not about these like quantifiable metrics like that. Learning is about learning how to think and how to structure your ideas and how to interpret and structure the ideas and your responses to the ideas of other people. And by teaching the test, we've sanitized it I'm going to use an analogy from the design world there's lots of articles going around about like sad beige interiors for sad beige children and all these monochromatic monostory mm-hmm. toys and things and I, that's what we did with education and, and the result mm-hmm. of that I truly feel is this generation of people who are disengaged from the intellectual curiosity of reading because they're so focused on just get me into this class get me into this college get me into this thing and then I just get my little piece of paper and it's like a drive-through experience yes. And so true. solving that, for me, was about making education more enriching through something like fashion and really finding a niche where we're able to explore the idea of incorporating creative play and incorporating yes. unstructured ways of exploring interdisciplinary reality. Like, that's what's very exciting to me. That's also what was exciting to me about your book, honestly, it is because it touches, it uses fashion and Ann Kolo's biography as a lens to explore so many different things. And I think that mm-hmm. that's at the heart of a lot of my favorite writing in general because it gives wow. you a window into things you haven't thought about before. And that's what good writing is supposed to do.
1: Well, you don't preach the word. And I completely agree with you in so many respects. And the whole aspect of the book for me, and I'm, I'm so glad that you are on here, Jonathan. in terms of uplifting the, it's okay to read this book, no matter who you are because we all can have a dream. And to me, that's what, what is the main thematic concern of the book and the ways I thought about putting the book together was thinking of, and this is very much a continuation of my um, dissertation work in terms of how women express themselves as artists, particularly when, and if you're a woman, you're marginalized, how do you have that artistic expression? How how does your creative soul come out? And that's what Anne Lowe's life was all about, was her devotion to nurturing and ensuring that her artistic soul was expressed as an artist, getting paid for it at a time when Black women were being made, her determination to see that through. So that's why I like to say it's for anyone who has a dream and no, i uh, love that it's, so it's true it's
0: so true yeah i feel like piper you and i maybe spoke before about elizabeth Keckley. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i feel like mm-hmm. okay if keckley. you haven't listened, please right <laughs> i want i want to read <laughs> i want to read
1: the elizabeth keckley version. i'm trying <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's just right such a publisher tell them to bomb them. <laughs> give me an email <laughs> No, i mean obviously they're different individuals entirely different lives different
0: situations but it's a there is there's overlap between these two ladies experiences where they were treated by first ladies and it's. i think it's so important for us to like deal with things that have happened that cause strife between communities i think we can't move on and be better until we <laughs> work through some stuff my dad's yeah. psychologist i'm very used to talking through problems <laughs> <when we work laughs> it. but
2: yeah, it's a huge like need it. to be flushed in order to heal yeah, yeah
0: true and yeah, i think that's one of the true. really wonderful things about your work is that it allows people who maybe wouldn't be so open to that to have an access point and for people who want those types of conversations to happen, to have a better idea of others' experiences and others' why it's so different than what they don't themselves.
1: Well, this is what I'm, I've been hoping for 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 my 2.0 uh, career, as I like say, to find ways into empathy and being able to connect and appreciate someone else's perspective. I think so much of that is like being necessary to what Jonathan is saying to flushing the wound out is is to get into and to be able to empathize with someone else's perspective. And fiction can do that. That's like a, a work that the fiction can do in terms of those human connections. I think the more that we're able to do that, I think the better off we all would be. And that part of doing that, I think, involves, again, conveying this the ways in which you can connect with someone in ways they're able to enter in and understand because like what Jonathan was saying, the whole aspect of the time period of teaching to the test and the way in which it impacted students' reading skills or whatever, my little crazy theory is that I think that's the reason why YA is so huge right now Hmm. amongst older people is because they can read it.
0: That's really interesting. I would bet Um, you were right. It's I'm easy.
2: I. I would assume you're absolutely right, just given baseline literacy statistics. What is it? Fifty-eight percent of the United States mm-hmm. population can't read above the sixth grade level. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Something like that. Fifty-eight, fifty-three.
2: Yeah. I could. Yeah. Don't yeah. quote me and on I'm that, but something I'm like that. I'm
1: always doing my un, my unscientific measurements on my students by what I assign, how I assign it, etc. What they take in, and all of that that bears that out in terms of reading levels. So. Yeah it's interesting. That's yeah. very interesting.
0: I feel like I mean it rings true to me and obviously this is <laughs> not a scientific study we are participating right. in at this moment. But I mean I'm just even thinking of the the emotional maturity that is required for not even like adult adult, but like reading content aimed at adults, fiction, nonfiction, whatever mm-hmm. versus the emotional maturity required for a young I mean mm-hmm. I can see it. I'm Absolutely
2: yeah 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 and real quickly i'm also going to just tie this back for anyone listening who is a fashion nerd who maybe is reading reluctant reader reluctant you will miss out on some of the biggest gems of information in the fashion world if you're not reading because a lot of the best information is in books not just on tiktok and runway recaps and vogue online so you know it seems like fashion would be an industry, right? It's all visual. I can just get this information visually. Dear listener, that is not the case. Please read more. I love you.
0: Well, and I know, <laughs> and I know you've had a similar experience. There's a lot of information that is not available digitally. Right. There's some a massive amount that you yes. just cannot find online. It doesn't right. even matter if it's in a book, if it's in an archive, if it's whatever. There's only so much. Online and you have right. to be able to. I mean, if you want a real answer, if you want to do good, groundbreaking work, or even just your best work, well, you have
1: to. Ooh, you've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> yes, we do, and we really do. And I mean, and that's why I, I really wanted another thing I wanted for by her own design was to be very accessible in terms of that. And one of the best for me, plaudits that it got was that it was listed by Parents Magazine as a great way for ages. 12 up to learn about black history. So I honestly for a while, guys, like I just wanted to send it to your your governor there, Rachel, Ron DeSantis, to say, yeah, please censor it. Ah <laughs> censorship means fail. So <laughs> Hey, I
0: mean well, I I would like a sure. <gasps> Oh my gosh, I cannot tell you how many children's books I've been donating to the local schools. I'm doing can to get books for those kids as much as I possibly can. It oh, breaks my God. heart to know what's happening. I
1: think it's a trust. Uh, and that's what craps me up about censorship is like their kids are like looking at their computers like without any filters at all. But go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean I
0: yeah. And I what is this
1: language? What?
2: Why? I know it's true. It's a uh, it's it's crazy. Is what it is. Um, or Black
1: History, which is American history, but you know, absolutely. Absolutely, it's American history. It's and, absolutely
2: American history, I mean, but some people only want sanitized American history. And that's the crux of that particular aspect of the matter, which is history with an asterisk is not history. And they don't even want to put in the asterisk. So, okay. It's
0: One of my not. favorite no. memes that I see going around social media is like, if you're studying history and you feel good, you're not studying history. Right. I mean, right. nobody's right. history right. is simple and straightforward and kind and right. Everyone, every person on this planet has, comes from a place or a time or a period or whatever that has difficult moments. And again, we deal with them, discuss them, treat them rationally, (laughs) not stomp our feet and get really scared that people are mad at us (laughs) and then deny them
2: access. Ah, (laughs) It's terrifying. Speaking of roadblocks, when you get stuck, when you have writer's block, what do you do? What's your solution? I, I have mine. I would love to hear yours. Well, it depends on if
1: I'm in the middle of a project or not. So it's like if I'm in the middle of a project, part of what I, I do is I always go back to the history and look at it again, see if there's not some other avenue in, a fresh way into maybe a different part of the story. One of the things I've had to learn. Place, it's okay to not write everything in complete order. So I've had to learn how to let that go in terms of things, in terms of projects, and that to trust that the connections between, say, something that happens a third of the way in or two thirds of the way in, will find a way back together in terms of that. So if I, yeah, if I'm in, a, if I'm in a project, that's that's what I tend to do, at least in between projects to try to practice more self-care it usually tends to be some aspect of letting go releasing not taking care of self that's causing to be waves of doubt or... <laughs> <laughs> they happen to all of us don't
2: feel yeah, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's right
1: cutthroat nature of publishing all of that it, it also doesn't probably doesn't help my cause any that my scholars scholarly work is tied very closely to all of this so it's like I wear two different hats with it but so yeah that in terms of finding a way away from it is what will help
0: yeah I mean there's so many things that all of us have demanded of us that we have either agreed to or have been put upon us and keeping all of that straight keeping our lives Going and still having time to do the work that really matters. I mean, that's not a challenge, I think, that's unique to anyone, right? Anyone who really loves their work suffers. I and mean, we still haven't found a solution to make this easy. <laughs> <laughs> we need, we need,
1: not easy. So.
0: so there seems to be a relation, you seem to be very interested in the relationship between women. I feel like that's a through line, regardless if we're looking at your fiction or your straight fiction or the historical fiction based off of real people. What do you think it is about that subject that really calls out to you?
1: Well, um, my thing is like, I think if if women were able to resolve differences and everything and come together, we could really do something in terms of not being marginalized, banding together to see the commonality that could really help us to I think what uh, men are afraid of is in terms of taking over, not taking over, but raising an equitable voice. And I always just, I just have hope for that. Sometimes there's maybe it's a naive hope that I have for that. But one of the things I noted prior to me writing American Daughters was, and this was another line of scholarship that I had noted, was how many white authors wrote about interracial friendships, but how many. Black authors did not.
2: Hmm. Interesting. I'd
1: right. so no, really, love to see that graph. I want to see it. Yeah. A, say those narratives from white authors. I like the help. For instance, just the a text out there like incredibly popular, whatever. <laughs> but in, in naming a black author who has taken on that same subject area and put it. And so there's always these questions of has a Black author done it and it just wasn't published? Or what it is about that in terms of why?
2: Or was published and not given the right push and budget and right. promotion right. to go back right. to the brutal nature of publishing. You can get the deal, but are they going to allocate the resources to you to get the story out always. there the right way? Hey, you're preaching to the choir
1: always <laughs> in terms of that. Right. Alice Walker wrote Meridian, but published back in nineteen seventy six, a very long time ago. For this particular aspects of interracial female friendship there that I think like Octavia Butler, I swear
0: there's something that vaguely connects, but I can't off the top of my head.
1: Well, I think the interesting thing about American Daughters is that it's the last one of three by these black authors has come up. So this earlier this year you had the first lady by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray that came out about the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary McLeod. And then next, I believe in March, before American Daughters comes out, Can We be friends, which is about the friendship between Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald. I've heard of this. That was yes, coming out. That was also co-written with The Knight and Denny Bryce. But then, like I said, American Daughters is this little weird entity amongst these three because I just wrote it myself. And in terms of thinking about why it is that Black authors didn't touch or investigate these particular relationships, like I said, it's something that has long intrigued me in terms of the the why's behind it. So you're right, it is a, a definite through line in terms of, the things that I'm interested in, in studying and investigating. I mean, one particular aspect, at least one aspect of Elizabeth Keckley's story, because Elizabeth Keckley is amazing, and she did a lot of other things beyond being a designer of 19th century gowns, For like very similar to Anne Lowe for high-profile women, not just Mary Lincoln, but Serena Davis, the First Lady of the Confederacy, right, as well. The whole aspect in terms of her relationship with Mary Lincoln and what ultimately happens with the relationship between them when she publishes what is in effect called the first White House tell-all behind the scenes and Mary Lincoln's reaction to it. And Elizabeth Keckley's insistence on trying to help Mary Lincoln with her efforts and how she was then treated, dumped off at the end. These perceptions, in terms of what constitutes friendship, etc., I think has something to do with that, and that's why it's very interesting that after a relatively long drought in publishing, not seeing these books, that within a year you're going to have three of them. With well, that's black wonderful, black. and I I know there is an audience. I
0: know for a fact because I and Jonathan A. We exist. <laughs> there's a lot of people. <laughs> yes, you do. We're friends. I can I can respect that. <laughs> that is, I mean, we it's fascinating it's interesting and I think one of the signs of like an intelligent human being is not being afraid of being challenged right like yeah. I don't have to be right I don't have to be the be all end all arbiter of truth mm-hmm. I want to know what's real mm-hmm. and in order to do that I've got to learn from people who know more than I do and love it that doesn't sound scary to me that sounds exciting that sounds Absolutely. fun I mean I'm exactly I agree that viewpoint be more universal dear God <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> what i wanted to ask as we come near the end of our interview is of course two of our i, I know i know i'm sad to leave this interview too because we have so much fun with you what is your earliest fashion related memory like the first time you remember feeling a connection related to fashion through fashion or clothing adornment whatever it might be
1: I am the ugly duckling child of two swan fashionista people. As I was growing up, the whole aspect of it, completely impacted upon me the importance of how you look, the way you look when you go out the door, what what that is all about. And so, you know, my father's favorite implement in the house was the iron. Right, that he was a very serious person about the ironing board and ensuring that creases were put where they needed to be put etc. all of that. So, when I was in high school and participating in what people call forensics, and it's not the gross stuff that has to do with dead bodies, but speech and debates, <laughs> that he ensured that I had my outfits appropriately done with appropriate Nancy Reagan bows and power suiting with shoulder feds a la 80s style everything every week so that I would be able to feel good in a sense because I looked good in a way in terms of my my appearance or whenever I would engage in my speech and debate appearances and so yeah that was put in very deeply uh into me and by both of them and they both loved me even as though I was their nerdy child
2: Jesus, me. I can relate. <laughs> my dad, in, in Persian culture, my dad, the crease on the pants was important. Mm-hmm. that like front mm-hmm. crease. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to mm-hmm. cut melons, is the phrase. In yeah, Persons. exactly. Uh,
1: and my father was a, a principal of the uh, creative performing arts. So it was like a lot of fame, but for the middle school children. And he deeply believed the way that he appeared every day as their principal, as a role model, as a black male role model wasn't was extremely
2: important. Amazing, and, uh, amazing makes
0: sense. I mean, clothing can be like armor, and I completely understand yes. maybe your father's perspective on his daughter, who he loves and cares about, is going to go do something challenging in public, and you don't have to worry about how you look. you Feel good about how you look. Yes. You can like free that brain space. but <laughs> other yes.
1: things to focus on, and and it's form. true because particularly because where I was competing in forensics was not a particular area where a lot of Black people were doing, at that particular point in time anyway, back then. There was this seemingly understood thing that what Black people did was to read poetry or read prose or whatever, but what I did in terms of original oratory involved me writing my own speeches about topics of my own interests. And so that on top of that, I agree, was providing, I believe, yeah, you're right, a certain armor and wonderful my appearance so mm-hmm. <laughs> so before we go last question yeah can you give us a couple of book recommendations oh what's like besides the ones besides the ones that i've uh, had already named i mean i have them from our, our interview before but okay so this one. <laughs> 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 yes yellow face what's good You see stuff about the publishing industry by rf quang who published she's known for publishing certain historical fantasy, but then she publishes this satire about publishing itself that was like, I think, took everybody by surprise, but I was not surprised. I knew that book was going to be hot when it came out, because uh, when it is like, there's a very gifted Chinese uh, American writer and a white writer, and they're together, and the Chinese American writer like chokes and dies in front of the white writer, and the white writer takes a book. Oh no! Publishes it. Oh under no! A oh no! That's why it's called Yellow Fakes. So yeah, it's I mean that is stealing yeah. on so many levels. I have but to read this book. I so. <laughs> see. That's what you feel. It's <laughs> why so when you get that high concepty thing, that's what it's like. Oh my God! I have to read this book. That's how I, I knew a lot of people were going to feel that when they saw. Well, that's um, power fiction, it, right? it makes you feel or it yes. can if it's done well yes, you get that feel like you're saying that rush of feeling no. oh my god I have to see how that situation played no. out yeah exactly it's a great book such a powerful thing it's amazing it's a great book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's a great book and many last writers like mm-hmm yeah, I'm sure <laughs> I'm <sorry>. yeah, exactly because <laughs> if it's not like on that level then on some other levels people haven't toured whether it's yellow face or brown face or black
0: face situations it's a horrible world but it i maintain the belief that we can make it better and mm-hmm. that by doing our due diligence and making a point of learning and trying to hear and listen hear and listen hear and listen. hear and listen hear and listen i'm
1: getting there taking baby steps work. absolutely really the exactly up. Mm-hmm. yeah thank yeah.
2: you Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, Piper. And thank you to our loyal listeners for joining us on this episode, this interview at Little Red Village. I am Jonathan Joseph, of course, joined by Rachel Elspeth Gross and today's guest, Piper Hughley, the author of an amazing book about Ann Colo, which you should also check out. We didn't feel the need to add that to the recommendations because, come on, it was a given. (laughs)
1: Built in.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Piper. Thank you. Thank you all. I am so excited for Piper's next book. That was a great second half of Piper Hughley's interview here at Little Red Village. And as with every episode, it is time for Footnotes. We're going to kick it off with Alice Roosevelt. The feisty daughter of Theodore Roosevelt was many things. A rebel, a trendsetter, and a firecracker. The president famously said of her to his friend, Owen Wister, I can either run the country or I can attend to Alice, but I cannot possibly do both. She broke many conventions of the day with her raucous partying or pranking gentlemen in the gallery of the Capitol building. She even buried a voodoo doll of William Howard Taft's wife, Nellie, in the yard before the Roosevelts left Pennsylvania Avenue. Fashionistas may know her for the shade of Alice Blue that she wore to her social debut in 1902. Even in Paris, her partying was legendary, and papers chronicled her attendance at, and I quote, 407 dinners, 350 balls, and 300 parties in a 15-month span. As Piper mentions in the interview, she was also friends with Booker T. Washington's daughter, Portia, over decades, the subject of her next book, American Daughters. Speaking of Portia Washington, who was she? In short, she was a very talented musician, the daughter of iconic Booker T. Washington, who founded Tuskegee University in Alabama. She was wooed by her soon-to-be husband and convinced to return from her piano studies in Europe in order to marry him, but money was tight for the couple as her husband's architectural contracts waned and she was forced to give piano lessons to keep the family solvent. To leave the shadow of her father's legacy, her husband moved the family to Texas where money was, once again, an issue. She later divorced him after he assaulted their daughter, Fanny. She continued to teach music privately or as faculty in various schools until she was retired at the age of 61 and focused on preserving her father's legacy. Lastly, we have Elizabeth Keckley. Rachel just mentioned to us that she wants to see Piper do a book on Elizabeth Keckley, but who was this amazing figure in fashion and world history? Born into slavery, she suffered for the first 18 years of her life as an enslaved child who was lent out by her master to a couple whose mistress took great joy in harming her and quote, breaking her. By the time she was an adult, she was such an accomplished seamstress, however, that her work supported the entire 17-member family she served as a slave in St. Louis. In effect, it was there that she met her husband and eventually purchased her freedom in 1852 for $1,200. $1,200. in 1852 is equivalent to roughly $37,689 in today's money. Now, in 1861, she met Mary Todd Lincoln. In fact, it was the day after Abe Lincoln's first inauguration, and she was offered a job the next day on the spot as her modiste. And so she and Mary Todd Lincoln became best friends and confidants over the years, with Elizabeth even accompanying Lincoln and the children to Illinois after the president's assassination. Things were not always so rosy because, though, in 1868, she released her own book called Behind the Scenes. In writing it, Keckley transgressed the laws of tact as well as the accepted norms of white supremacy at the time. Her relationship with Mary Todd Lincoln was ambiguous and did not meet the rules of gentility and social separation of races. It ended up losing her Many clients. Unfortunately, for us fashion historians, there are not that many extant garments attributed to Elizabeth Keckley in various collections for many reasons. But some things do remain in the collection of the Smithsonian and various academic institutions across the country. That was today's footnotes for this amazing part two for Piper Hughes interview here at Little Red Village. Make sure that you check in for our show notes on the website soon and that you remember, fashion is for everyone.